Hello everyone, it's March 29th, 2022. So this week, NASA announced support for development of a second Artemis lunar lander. SpaceX is still on track for a 2025 landing, but there's certainly room for more competition. It's all about sustaining lunar development. I like it. Let's do it. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 352 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Uh, I bought a, uh, a Kinect this week. That's the Xbox one? Yeah, the, the LiDAR camera. I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah, so I what's know, going right? on with that? Is that yeah. still a thing? Like It, it seems to have gone the way <laughs> no. of like the uh, Nintendo Wii, kind of. Yeah, it's it's discontinued. They, Microsoft tried to, tried to keep it alive by making a version for Windows. Um, and it wasn't really a version for Windows. It was uh, a USB adapter and an SDK. But I've been playing Beat Saber, and one of the things that really bugs me is, like, sometimes I will play a level, and I'll do okay, but I'm just like, something feels wrong, and I really want to be able to have a third-person view so I can see what I was doing and, and see see if there's any obvious things I can improve um, to mm. just make it make it a little easier on myself, right? And so I can do background removal pretty easily. NVIDIA, I've got an NVIDIA graphics card and they have a utility that, that does uh, background removal, but it's really keyed for like, I'm facing a webcam sitting at my desk kind of segmentation, not here's a full body facing away from the camera kind of segmentation. And it keeps clipping my head off. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I've been, I've been looking at different, uh, segmentation tools and there, there's a really cool one that that's, that's really, really good. What is it called? I forget what it's called. It's a, it's a, you know, a machine learning um, kind of thing, but it's really intended for post-processing for the most part. And it's, it's really intense. Like, I don't know if I could run it, um, on live video without just heating up the house, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, I realized, well, wait, I was, I was clicking through, uh, OBS plugins and somebody has one for the connect. And I was like, well, wait, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, a connect is perfect for doing, uh, doing background removal. And so I started looking and if you want to buy one, like on Amazon, they're like $200 because they are discontinued. But if you go on eBay, you can buy one out of box for 40 bucks. And that's what I did. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if it's actually going to be helpful. Um, but I would really like to have a uh, depth mapped camera. I think there's some cool stuff you could do with that. Yeah. That was like all the rage for a bit and I don't hear as much about it. I mean, like, it, it was really cool. It's just that there weren't enough games for it. But it's it's a great idea. Second Artemis lander. So we have a starship option B. So basically, we're looking at another uh, starship here. Or a lunar lander starship, I should say. Right, right, right. Yeah, so the Artemis HLS um, contract, human landing system contract what we've talked about so far is basically all been under uh, option a which is like uh two missions like one uncrewed demonstration and then a crewed landing uh that crewed landing would be uh, artemis 3 um but there's always been an option b included and there was a lot of back and forth early on like if they hired or if they awarded two option A contracts, like who gets option B? Do they both get it? Does a third party get it? I mean, I don't think actually, I don't think a third party was ever uh, an option. Um, but, you know, like how, how does this play out? Well, you know, we only selected one uh, option A contractor and now uh, they, uh, they, NASA has activated option B, which does a little bit of extra work, but basically you can think of it as a, as um, buying a second crude landing uh, after Artemis three, it'd actually be uh, uh, Artemis five. But what's, what we're talking about is uh, a second lander altogether. So um, I don't know if they've actually issued the request for proposals um, or if they just announced that they're going to be putting it out. Oh, they say by the end of the month, so that means okay. potentially between airing or within yeah. 48 hours of the show airing. Yeah. 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 Thank if they you. hold to that. Yeah. And, and I like, I'm looking forward to digging into that RFP. Um, 
because there, mm. there's going to be some cool stuff in it. But basically, it's going to be looking for a second lander to basically do a second option B, skipping option A. Um, and, you know, in in the simplest terms, it's basically uh, buying a second or, or a third crude landing um, after Artemis 3 and Artemis 5. Um, I got a quote here from Bill Nelson that he gave on a press conference. Um, Today's announcement is what I said to Congress. I promised competition, so here it is. Um, and that's really what it all comes down to is, you know, the the whole protest of oh this isn't this isn't competitive which i mean i agree it's not but like the the two other uh hls article h applicants uh had unacceptable proposals yeah it was the right decision even if it meant yeah. going against the the goal of having uh, redundancy yeah exactly and, and redundancy is good but if it's not available you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, another quote here is uh, multiple swim lanes. That's Lisa Morgan, the HLS program manager. She said, doing this, uh, this additional option B uh, contract gives us uh, multiple swim lanes to get to uh, the surface of the moon. So a- as far as I can count, there are three swim lanes that they're looking for. Option A, option B, and then SLD, which is what this new contract is called. It stands for Sustaining Lunar Development. And yeah, it's funny. In my notes, I wrote that it acts much like a second option A, but after doing more research, I think it's actually more like an option B. Um, but but it's very similar to the original HLS contract. Uh, there's a fixed price. Uh, it's the The payouts are milestone driven. And then what's really cool is that SLD has increased capacity requirements compared to uh, HLS option A. Um, it will be concurrent with option B, even though, you know, the landings are, are actually taking place after Artemis 5. Um, but it sounds like option B it is hoped to have additional landings after that. And then you'll have option B and, and SLD missions being flown back and forth or something like that. So you think it's more like option B in the sense that it has the increased capacity requirements? Is that, is that what you make? Well, is that what you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, not only does option B, um, increase the requirements as compared to option A. So option A was basically two people and, you know, two suitcases or whatever. Um, option B is, I, I think it's three or four people and then additional cargo. Um, and that's what SLD is also requiring. It, 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 I, I'm not exactly sure what the requirements are. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to digging into the documents when they come out. Uh, cause it sounds like the requirements are not going to be identical, but you know, roughly equivalent. And uh, SLD specifically is looking to establish recurring lunar surface transportation, right? It's sustaining lunar development. Okay, that makes sense. If yeah, so I guess Artemis three is supposed to just be our Apollo eleven <laughs> right. of the Artemis program. Okay, right. One of the other reasons that I think that option B is a closer fit for SLD is because option B is also intended. Um, to have, you know, this sustained uh, lunar presence mm. or, or sustained lunar excursions. So um, the way NASA's talking about this uh, in press conferences, we'll see what the what the actual not legislation, <laughs> but the actual paperwork says. But the way they're talking about it is that they want to have two landers, presumably uh, SpaceX. Well, SpaceX is one of them. Presumably the second one is going to be Blue Origin. Uh, they were putting up such a fuss. I can't imagine that they're not gonna, uh, be applying. And if they apply, you know, now that they've had their little practice run, hopefully they'll actually put together a valid proposal. So presumably it'll be, uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin, um, having, you know, these two landers going. And the way NASA's talking about is that they want their first couple of trips to be you know, under NASA's direct guidance, um, doing a lot of supervision, um, you know, kind of helping them decide how to do uh, upgrades and fix problems and like really have uh, have NASA's guiding hand helping them along. But then after a certain number of trips, it sounds like NASA really just wants to be able to buy seats and say, OK, now that you are experienced, you can handle the expertise uh, of of actually flying the lander 
we're just going to buy seats. You get us to the surface and we're going to do science. And, you know, that really fits with the way that NASA really should be working. It, it, NASA can do launchers like SLS and, and Saturn V, but NASA's about science, or at least it should be about science. Building rockets is not NASA's forte, right? Like we can go on and on about shuttle and SLS and, and the, the camels that they unfortunately are, or the camel that, mm-hmm. that shuttle was and the very delayed quadruped that, that, uh, so it's like commercial lunar crew essentially yeah yeah exactly and like that that sounds really good to me i don't know who who knows what this is actually going to look like uh but i i hope that's what it looks like i think that'd be really cool um commercial crew to to iss is fantastic so we'll see the language um that (laughs) that they've used is multiple experienced providers in the market and at first I was like, oh, cool. Right. So, you know, they want to have these two, these two landers flying with a lot of guidance and then less guidance. And then at that point, you know, hopefully there'll be more entrance into the market. But I, I think this phrase, uh, that was quoted by Space News, multiple experienced providers in the market, uh, is directed at Congress, which, uh, was very upset with not having, uh, competition. And so I think it's, it's directed at Congress saying, look, we have two. That's multiple. And I don't think that it's intended to indicate that NASA really is pushing to have, you know, three or more landers bringing people to the surface. I don't think they would argue with it. I don't think that there's the market for it either. So we'll see the the demand for it. Yeah, that would be longer term if this ecosystem idea takes, I guess. Right. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, second mm-hmm. Artemis lander is yet to be determined. But, I mean, I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, but yeah, it's probably going to be, it's probably going to be blue moon. You know, you don't think, uh, our, our, our favorite alpaca by dynamics no might, uh, not be able to fix things a little bit. You know, <laughs> complete I, I really would, yeah, I would love for them to be able to do it. But if, if your first attempt has a negative mass margin, I don't, I don't think you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something fundamentally wrong. I mean, most likely you're right, fundamentally wrong, but you don't think that maybe they've resolved that problem somehow? I mean, technically they're not, they're not allowed to do that. You know, like they, they can't do that work unless they're, you know, SpaceX who's mm. been developing this anyway, but, but SpaceX was ordered to stop developing the moon version of Starship. So you, you, like during the, during the, uh, um, the blue origin protest, like that actually happened. So I don't know. Well, but I feel like that's because they were, they had already won the award. And so that yeah. then locked having NASA right. be able to tell them what they couldn't, couldn't develop. Whereas right. Dynamics exactly. could just be a new bidder, right? This is 2022. Yeah. We're going to come up with a new, uh, I don't know, alpaca, uh, le- uh, llama, something, come up with something different. <laughs> no, alpa- alpacas are better than llamas. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm mostly I'm mostly being sarcastic that you know they're not allowed to, but yeah, I I would be kind of surprised if they were, if they were dedicating time time and resources to fixing this after they already lost the contract. But who knows? You know, that'd be cool fair. if if they if they came back. I kind of wish at this point that some other you know fourth party would come along and uh, make a proposal. I don't know why, but it just seems like we're kind of stuck with SpaceX realistically. At least, because I don't know how much chance Blue Origin has, but uh, I don't know how much faith I have in Blue Origin to actually pull this off. But you know, I think I think they can come up with a with a design, no problem. I think uh, what's going to be really interesting is how much they bid, because if you remember, they threw a big old hissy fit in court, saying, "Well, we would have bid lower if we knew that there was a chance it was going to be accepted," or you know, we we would have renegotiated if if we thought that that was okay and so it's going to be really interesting to see if they actually decide to do that uh, and my guess is that they're going to come back with the most expensive bid that they think that they can get away with uh because capitalism and i i really can't wait to see them mocked on twitter if and when that happens <laughs> but i don't know we'll see we'll see well that, and then i guess my last question is so so you don't think there could be any new entrants realistically? I don't just know because of how I would love to challenging see designing a lander is. Mm. I don't know. I'd I'd love to see that. I think that'd be really cool. I mean, there were plenty of uh, of HLS applicants um, who didn't make the down select to the final three. So maybe one or more of them will come along. Maybe somebody totally different. But 
I mean, how many how many people are there really? I mean, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman could, you know, break away from the national team and go do their own thing. Who knows? Um, it'd be cool if there was an international partner that would bid. I don't know if I, I yeah, don't know if cool. this was open to non uh, non U.S. companies, but like that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm looking at round one. Also had uh, Boeing and Vivace or Vivace that didn't make it to that. Three oh, team down I pronounced it Vivace in my head. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Vivace, yeah. Vivace makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, in terms of uh, not having too much faith in Blue Origin, I don't know how much faith you would have if Boeing made it to no. the final round of this <laughs> sustaining lunar development. And uh, Chubby in the chat says, considering how much trouble Grumman had with the Apollo Lem, I bet Blue Moon, a.k.a. integrated lander vehicle, will have more. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. But we'll we'll see. I mean, it's it's a weird place that the that the industry is at right now where everybody wants to go to the moon. But, you know, it's it's really expensive and nobody really wants to. Yeah, getting meat bags to the surface is non-trivial. Yeah. And and not only is it non-trivial, but there's not a lot of reward right now, you know? Yeah, you can't really make a good commercial case for it like you can with launch vehicles. Mm -hmm. You know, there's tons of satellites to put up, but how many people want to go to the moon Yeah, uh, or are willing to pay for it? Yeah, exactly. Like one thing that uh, didn't make it into the show notes, Gamma uh, completed their uh, initial funding round. Gamma is a German company, I believe, that's doing a light sale. It's spelled G-A-M-A. And their first one is going to be called Gamma Alpha and then Gamma Beta, Gamma Delta. And yes, they have a Gamma Gamma on the books. <laughs> <laughs> the logical. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but but Gamma wants to do uh, light sails. Um, ultimately, they want to be able to go out to the Oort cloud. Um, they're doing um, a first launch, I believe, later this year is what they want to do. Uh, to like, I mean, low orbit, they're, they're saying low enough that, uh, that they won't be able to demonstrate thrust. Um, but then they want to go to a higher orbit, be able to demonstrate thrust and then go, I think go to Saturn and then the Oort cloud or Saturn and then a bunch of deep space, like a flotilla. And then they want to go to the Oort cloud mm. and, uh, gamma is kind of cool because they're not using trusses. They're using uh, a spin stabilized, a spin deployed um, light sail. That's um, clever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool until you think about the fact that you have to turn the light sail and when it spins stabilized, there's going to be some really interesting, uh, dynamics there. How do you turn your vehicle without, uh, spoiling your sail, uh, or fouling mm. your sail? Um, cause sometimes you're turning it to spoil it, uh, intentionally, but to, to not foul it. And then, uh, do you actually have any savings because you're you're getting weight savings by not having the, the trusses but do you then lose those gains by spending more energy fighting your spin stabilization yeah, your performance yeah yeah so anyway um what's interesting is that they want to do uh, exploration and science and there's no money in it how do you send out a flotilla to all the you know planets in deep space if nobody's paying for it, like how, how do you make money doing that? And, you know, it'd be great if, if Issa just said, here's money, we'll fly these. We, we love it. We're going to put our own payloads on them and, and you get us out there. But it just kind of strikes me that, yeah, that's not a very super profitable thing. And, and likewise going to the, the moon surface, putting people on the moon surface is not a profitable thing right now. Um, you can't do tourism on the moon and we won't do tourism on the moon for a long time. It just, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. Um, two things about gamma one, I think you said they're German, but they're actually French because I found the article. Oh, French. Here. Okay. Thank you. Mm. And, um, plus you said that I'm reading, of course, it does not elaborate that the, that it does use a spin sail solution, which makes it sound like that that's how they deploy the thing. But do you think that maybe there's something that can keep it in a more rigid, fixed position once it's deployed or does it have to be nope. spinning the whole time they okay. they they are very intentional about not having a rigid sail oh about it not being rigid 
period. Yeah. Because it seems like you could deploy it by spinning without any kind of trusses. And then once it's deployed, I don't know, something, some kind of a advanced material that can maybe like harden, can maybe like, you know, to get <laughs> a little bit more rigid. You hey, know? that no, that's a cool idea. I don't think that that's what they're trying to do, but that's a cool idea. I think that there are materials like that that would behave in that way, that once they're deployed and maybe yeah, you know, there, a chemical there's, reaction. You could, know, UV resins or something. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, there you yeah, go. That's I like a good idea. that idea. That's actually really cool. I mean, granted, you have to coat the thing in resin, which m- might not actually wind up being lighter than a, than a metal truss. But yeah, like if you're going to make it stiff, like I don't see why you wouldn't just use a plastic stiffener that just um, expands out into shape. I don't know. Or just something to give it. It doesn't necessarily have to be as rigid as what would be needed to deploy it, but just something that can keep it from flopping if you if they have to make some kind of a maneuver, which I assume that, that they're going to do very, very slowly. And that's how they keep this from happening. Because if it's spin stabilized, you just have to turn yeah. very slowly. Yeah. Once you're out of Earth orbit, you can you can turn slowly if you're if you're orbiting earth you know escaping earth you you have to move reasonably quickly Um, once you start getting up into those higher orbits i guess it's not that big of a deal but yeah that's pretty cool All right, so let's do four short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what's the first one? First up, NASA opens 50-year-old lunar sample. Recognizing that science and technology would improve over time, NASA vacuum sealed some of Apollo 17's collected lunar samples. And this week, it finally opened one of them for the first time. NASA says that the timing is fortuitous, as further understanding lunar geology and the moon's history will help with the upcoming Artemis missions to the surface. Before the sealed sample was extruded, it was first scanned with an X-ray CT beam, followed by an analysis of the gas in an outer protective tube. Finally, the inner container was pierced to extract any gases present, and then the sample was removed from the tube and separated into half-centimeter increments to be shared with scientists around the world. So next up, Astra's successful launch we didn't mention had a not-secret anymore customer. So LV-0009 successfully made it to orbit on March 15th, carrying a spaceflight rideshare mission. On board were Orsat Zero, a CubeSat from our friends over at Portland State Aerospace Society, a near-space radio payload called iStar S4, which stayed attached to the upper stage, and 16 0.25U CubeSats from a heretofore undisclosed customer. These are now known to be VHF communications relays called Space B, built and operated by Swarm Technologies, an IoT company. They have now launched 127 of these PicoSats, and most places get four passes a day for two-way communications. All right, next... Uh- Uh, Starship environmental review delayed again. This is the third time that the assessment has been delayed by the FAA. Uh, Right now, the current hangups are an Endangered Species Act consultation and a National Historic Preservation Act consultation. While this might be annoying, it appears that SpaceX has also encountered some delays. First, the full-stack Starship Super Heavy uh, that we thought was going to be used on the first orbital launch won't be. it, it looks like instead a different pair that is still in construction and or testing will be used. Second, SpaceX has pulled resources away from Starship to focus on Starlink anti-jamming capability to continue to support the Ukrainian government. And fourthly, Ariane Spas and SpaceX adjust to missing Soyuz launches. After Roscosmos pulled out of French Guiana in protest of sanctions, other launch companies have had to take up the slack. 2022 will be very different for us from what we were supposed to do, said Stefan Israel, CEO of Ariane Spas. We are working very closely with our customers to accommodate the best solutions for them, end quote. In particular, five missions are immediately affected. Two Galileos, two ESA science missions, and a French military satellite. The Galileos are likely to shift to Ariane 6, which was designed with that class of payload in mind. This would result in a delay, but not one expected to degrade the service. Keep in mind that Ariane Spas is not immune from invasion fallout. Vegas's upper stage engine, RD-843, is manufactured by Yushmash in Ukraine. The other three Soyuz payloads may fall to SpaceX, which is willing to bump Starlink launches for paying customers, but is more tight-lipped about negotiations. All right, let's do uh, this week in spaceflight history. We have three winners. We have uh, the Greek, Deskin Miller, and Peter McMally with uh, the bonus points going to the Greek and Deskin Miller. Uh, so the uh, clue was less than perfect, but successful, but a failure. <laughs> what, a, what a clue. Uh, yeah. somebody, somebody in Discord asked, because I forgot to put the clue up right away, and somebody was like, wait, what was it? Something first slash failed slash completed slash failed for real. 
Paraphrasing. (laughs) I say that encapsulates it pretty well. Mm. Um, Yeah, so so the event was on April 4th, 1968, the launch of Apollo 6. Uh, So, yeah, this is the, this is the mission that I guess, like, as the clue says, was less than perfect, but successful, but a failure. So it basically, it just means that this is a mixed bag of a mission. So, um, but like overall, it qualified the Apollo mission to move forward and uh, they didn't have to redo anything, if you will. And I guess that's what you would call a failure. They just didn't achieve their objectives as comprehensively as they would have liked to. Mm. So um, so what's interesting is that this was the third and final uncrewed flight of the Apollo program and the second flight of the Saturn V. And that's interesting, the second flight of the Saturn V, because on the next one, which would be Apollo 8, which would feature the Saturn V, they would have crew on board. And that's kind of kind of interesting because, uh, like as we'll see, there were some problems with the Saturn V, and yet they... They deemed it enough of a success to put people on it the next time they flew it. So the mission objectives, roughly speaking, was uh, the successful operation of the service module propulsion system uh, with a no a no ullage start. So mm-hmm. I'm no assuming ullage. that no Boy. no yeah. ullage, yeah. I'm assuming <laughs> that no ullage means that they wouldn't give it a little boost before they kicked on the engines. So they're just kind of like letting it float freely, and then they start it up to see if everything works correctly. Um, is that what's meant by a no ullage start? Yeah. Could well, I mean, no ullage, ullage is the cavity, so wouldn't that mean that right. you... It, they mean no, a no ullage burn uh, was used oh, for no, Oh, I see, I see. You tie ullage start together. <laughs> There's no ullage start to try to get rid of the ullage. That's what you mean? No, yep. I think it's a no ullage. Oh, I read it as no right, ullage there. start. Not right, no right. ullage start. <laughs> no. Oh, geez. I don't. Okay, now I'm lost. It's a it's a no ullage burn start. They're caught. They're simplifying the the full descriptor ullage burn to just ullage. So that means that instead of doing an initial burn in order to get a little bit of ullage at the top of the tank, so that you have to fuel at the bottom, they're just going to start it straight out, right? Yep. Yeah. I think Colin, Colin might just uh, have won the uh, knowledge. <laughs> the, 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 the title. <laughs> yes, Colin in the chat. It was a knowledge <laughs> burn. <laughs> yeah, so a no-knowledge start for one. Um, but also some other objectives were the proper operation of the electrical power, GNC, primary guidance, uh, environmental control, and communications. Uh, the demonstration of the block two heat shield at lunar reentry velocities. But however, this was not the block two command service module. This was actually the block one, um, which didn't have all the features, but they did have the, but they did have the block two heat shield. So they had to demonstrate that. Um, so the block one was actually called the CSM, uh, 020. Basically, this is more of a simplified version that cannot be crewed. In this instance, they were just testing the heat shield for that. And uh, another objective was uh, the demonstration of the structural and thermal integrity and compatibility of the spacecraft and launch vehicle. So the Saturn V had been qualified already for crewed flight on uh, the fourth Apollo mission. So after that first mission, it was qualified, but now they needed to fly it with the whole stack, the command and service module on top of that to make sure that it could actually do the translunar injection and all that, which as we find out, it you know, did have some problems. So I guess it's good that they did this because I'm assuming that the problem was actually at least in part caused by this. I actually didn't look too far into it. I'm kind of going through the events themselves and not a deep dive of the investigation as, you know, like into what led to the problems. Mm. But when you stack all that stuff on top of the Saturn V, perhaps that caused some issues uh, that we will talk about shortly. So the actual stack, just to remind people, the first stage uh, of uh, the Saturn V was the S1C first stage. Then you have uh, the S2 second stage. Then you have the S4B third stage or the upper stage. Then you have the block one command and service module, as I said, and then they had a lunar module test article, the LTA. So this was kind of like a, like if you look at a picture of it, it looks like it's made out of plastic and someone forgot to paint it. Like it doesn't look real, which it's not, but it's basically just made of aluminum, but it does have actual fuel tanks. Uh, but the fuel tank was filled with water glycol and uh, the oxidizer tank was actually filled with Freon. So I guess they wanted to simulate uh, you know, the fuel and oxidizer and not just put in a mass simulator, but actual liquid. Uh, but the rest of it is basically kind of like a mass simulator, but it is in the same shape as the actual like lunar lander. So it hmm. looks like it, but it's not it. It's just a big piece of aluminum. So that's what is on the pad. So let's move on to the launch. Um, so during the first stage, 
boost phase, um, there was a 5 hertz oscillation. And this is what I think, and you can dig into a really good PDF, which will be included in the show notes that picks apart exactly what happened there. But basically, we've all heard of pogo oscillations, right? So uh, you get a kind of resonance that is caused um, by the engines and uh, the actual shape and length of uh, and composition and mass and density of, you know, the rocket. And you get these interesting resonances. So that's what happened in this case. And they detected that during just that first phase of the flight, but that didn't seem to cause any problems. So you have your first stage and that drops away. Then you have the lighting of the second stage and that is where there are some actual problems. Um, so two of the engines shut down early and there's a total of five on the second stage. Basically the on, the onboard guidance, when that happened, it automatically switched to burning for approximately one minute more. I think it was like 58 seconds. What happened was the second and third engine, or engines two and three, they shut down early, and this was due to an electrical cross-wiring. So again, some cross-wiring. I know we talk about these a lot in This Week in Spaceflight History when things go wrong. I guess yeah. it's a common occurrence uh, that things get wired incorrectly. <laughs> so that happened, and the uh, the second stage had to burn a little bit longer, as well as the S4B upper stage. And what was interesting is that um, actually uh, the second stage, getting back to that for 40 seconds, is that the guidance logic was not programmed for a two-engine out scenario, but that happened and it still defaulted to the single engine out mode, which I think is pretty cool. Hmm. Um, and that's something that was praised by people later on that, uh, you, you know, you have two engine outs or two engines that go out and it does not have the correct burn sequence for that, but it doesn't, I don't know, do something even worse. Um, so I guess that, you know, they had a pretty good, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Decision tree. I don't know. Oh, there you go. That, yeah, sure. So a pretty good decision tree that was not, you know, explicitly programmed for a two engine out scenario, but still did respond by burning at least one minute longer. So once that second stage burned, uh, the S4B, uh, that also had to, uh, burn slightly longer. The spacecraft was then left in a 198 by a 96 nautical mile orbit instead of the 100 mile circular orbit that it was supposed to have. And this whole document that I'm getting this from, it was all written with nautical miles. I know that's a little bit confusing, but I didn't want to have to do all the conversions. So sure, you're just going to sure. have to go with it. Um, and I still don't even know exactly what a nautical mile is. I just know it's a little bit bigger than a regular one. Um, right. <laughs> but that's kind of how I think about it. So at this point, let's talk about the planned mission versus the actual mission, because this is kind of where things begin to diverge because of this little anomaly on uh, the second stage. So the planned mission was for the S4B to put the CSM into a translunar trajectory, followed by the CSM separation and a 280-second retrograde burn, which was to achieve an elliptical orbit of 11,984 by 19 nautical miles for a free return trajectory back to Earth. So this was not to go into a free return trajectory around the moon. This is just to gain enough altitude so that on the return part of the orbit, it could actually um, increase its speed and therefore achieve uh, the velocities necessary to simulate a lunar reentry. And that's actually what was going on here. More so, that's what's supposed to happen is uh, the, you know, 12,000 by 19 nautical mile orbit. So then at that point, the CSM is oriented to a cold soak attitude with the uh, command module facing away from the sun. So this is in order to let everything cool back down to reach a temperature. And this is what I'm assuming is just trying to reproduce the conditions that you would get on a much longer return from the moon. Um, because at this point, it is still in orbit around the Earth. So they have to simulate those conditions. Cold soak, I couldn't find a really good definition of exactly what is meant by that. I kept searching like NASA cold soak, Apollo cold soak. Um, and there was a lot of talk about it in mission control, but um, I don't know if it's uh, specifically just to get the external temperature of the spacecraft down or if it's to make sure that the fuel is at a certain temperature. I don't see what that would have to do with anything though. Uh, so if you have any insights, let me know what you think cold soak is. Yeah, it is about the interior temperature because... Um like like that's what the soak is it's holding it at a certain attitude to let the entire thing cool down to let the cold soak into the interior um and i'm trying to think because i know why they what they were trying to simulate and i'm trying to remember if it is right because like the reason that they did the barbecue roll was because they didn't want a temperature gradient across the vehicle. They wanted the entire thing uh, heated evenly. And the, the cold soak attitude has to do with like, cause you get heated by the earth, but I don't think that's it. And I tend to think that it was, it had something to do with the longer 
solar eclipses around the moon, but I could also be incorrect. It might be because of these solar eclipses because, yeah, um, in this mission, they're not going to be like orbiting the moon. So you're not going to have that happen. So they have to reproduce that somehow. So I think that maybe that's what it is. Yeah. So I found some sources that they were specifically trying to cold soak the uh, command module as part of a test of the heat shield. Yeah. I think maybe I read that too, but I mean, do you think that there would be that much of a, I mean, I guess they do it. They're just trying to be thorough, but it's a heat shield. So if you go from, you know, X degrees to insanely hot, I don't know how much of a difference that would make. Like I would think we're looking at a difference of maybe a couple hundred degrees and maybe that's to make sure that the interface of the heat shield with uh, the spacecraft um, is sounded, that maybe temperature does not affect that in some negative way, but Uh, not the heat shield itself. So, so, I found a document, a NASA document, that there were tests uh, on the expansion and contraction of gaps between the heat shield okay, compartments, so was... the integrity of the ablator when cold soaked, and a quantitative evaluation of the distortion of the crew compartment heat shield. So okay. It sounds like what if, yeah, what if we actually mess with it and we end up in a off nominal mission where the heat shield ends up getting cold soaked? What does that do to reentry? Okay. Yeah, because this is the. First time they're flying that heat shield on a CSM, again, not the actual one that they're going to be flying, but close enough. So anyway, going along with this planned, the, the planned mission scenario, a second service module burn was to be made to increase the velocity for the lunar reentry speeds and also provide a flight path angle of minus 6.5 degrees at the entry interface. So that is what's supposed to happen. But let's talk about what actually happened now. Um, so they had the pogo oscillations, which did not affect the mission directly, but it's, that is still kind of an anomaly that should be looked at. And uh, I saw a figure of 0.6 Gs plus or minus. So that's the amount of force that was being you know exerted on uh, the spacecraft, which actually exceeds the design criteria. Mm. There was actually some material or debris that was seen coming away from uh, the adapter. Um, and we've determined that maybe that's the adapter between uh, the S4B in the command and service module, or specifically, um, I guess it would be when you think about how it's stacked, the LTA test article. But again, that didn't seem to affect things negatively. It's just mostly down to the second stage and the problem with the cross wiring, um, which subsequently led to actually a fire, which um, caused uh, the shutdown of a second engine next to that. Oh, and could we say at this point uh, a thanks to Mike for finding a picture of the debris falling from the Saturn V? Uh, which we will have in the show notes. So I, I truly hate um, having a fire being mentioned and then jumping away from that to talk mm-hmm. about functional <laughs> hardware. But um, I feel like with engines, yeah, that's that's true. But I'm thinking to myself like, okay, yeah, I, I, I probably didn't look into it as much as I should have. But, you know, it's like those engines operate in very fiery, hot environments in the first place. So a little bit of a fire, which I know sounds like a dumb thing to say, um, <laughs> but um, depending on exactly where it happens, might not necessarily be a bad thing. Um, it's much worse to have something like an overpressure event inside of a combustion chamber. That, to me, right. seems way worse. But um, Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> any fire you walk away from, uh, you you saying that had very much uh, moss vibes from uh, oh, the, um, IT crowd. the IT crowd where he goes, I'll put this with the rest of the fire. Um, <laughs> but as much as I hate to, to walk away from that, the adapter was actually one of the main focuses of this test. And um, we'll put a, a photo in the show notes of the lunar module test article c- because it's like really pretty in a ugly sort of way because it looks like the space like you said it looks like the spacecraft but it it's missing features it's like a low res mm-hmm. version um but in the background is the adapter so the adapter is this like truncated conical uh piece that starts at the width of the s4b and then narrows uh, to mate with the bottom of the uh, of the service module, and so that entire thing is like a, a very critical uh, component for the vehicle because it has to withstand all of the the launch environment and all those stresses and loads. Um, but then once it gets up to orbit, it has to be able to open up. The first ones, I believe, actually deployed their panels, and then later ones um, just opened up into four sections, but remained uh, attached to the S4B. I, I, 
could be wrong. This is very old learning I'm trying to bring up here, mm. but it has to do that. And then it has to um, hold the lunar module during the launch. It has to hold the lunar module during the docking, and then it has to release the lunar module so that it can be extracted out. Um, it's, it's a very interesting dance that this whole thing has to be mm-hmm. able to do on top of the S4B. So that's why they're, they're so concerned with it. And yeah, Mike's photo, um, of, of debris coming off of that area is, uh, I, I bet you it caused, uh, quite a number of gray hairs, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at NASA. So what happens now in the actual mission, getting back to the S4B, uh, the S4B has, um, that had to compensate for the second stage, not, uh, performing as it should have. So basically it had to expend extra fuel to get it into the right orbit. So at this point, the whole thing is sitting in a parking orbit and it does this for three hours, which is basically two orbits. And at the end of the second orbit, that's when it was commanded to fire its engines or to actually relight the engines, uh, to kick it out into its translunar or its simulated translunar injection. Mm. Um, but that didn't happen. So what they had to do instead was actually separate, uh, the S4B from the CSM and then use the engines on the CSM, uh, to boost the orbit. So you can see how things are kind of getting really like this is very much diverging from the planned mission. Yes. That's but they're still making they're still making the best of it. I mean, and to be honest, like doing all this within you know just like a number of hours to get a partially successful mission is kind of miraculous because I mm-hmm. almost don't even see that happening these days. Like they would kind of like just let it sit there and like low Earth orbit and think it over. I mean, I guess this was a different era and it was kind of like do or die. So they said, screw it, we're just going to light the engines yeah. on the CSM, uh, and they did a four hundred and forty two second burn and that put it into uh the uh, twelve thousand by by eighteen nautical mile free return orbit. So after the four hundred and forty two second burn, uh the CSM was then put into its long period of cold soak for six hours. Since uh the CSM was used to get into that orbit, the free return orbit, there was not enough fuel to actually increase the velocity on the return leg of uh, the mission. So it couldn't get up mm. to those lunar reentry speeds um because they needed to save that fuel to perform some other maneuvers. It was actually they would only be able to get to 20% of the desired delta v change. Uh, that's not 20% of the lunar reentry speed, but 20% of how much delta v that they needed. So that's how much fuel they expended getting into this higher orbit. Okay, I was going to say one fifth of the speed. I mean, once you're up at that high in altitude, you're basically, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're going to come back faster <laughs> yeah. than that. So the CSM was maneuvered uh, to separation attitude and the command module was then separated from the whole thing. So at this point, you just have the command module, the little capsule. Um, and at two minutes later, um, it reached uh, the entry interface and it was at a velocity of 32,830 feet per second, which again is a metric. That's how they put it in the paper. I would prefer you know, kilometers per hour, perhaps, um, <laughs> might be better. But this is America in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, America yeah. in the 60s, feet per second. Like, who it's, would even use feet? It's it's actually, interestingly enough, it's not that far from kilometers per hour. That's, that's 36,000 kilometers per hour. Okay. So it's within 10%. One foot per second is within 10% of a kilometer per hour. Okay. No okay, that's pretty interesting. All right. That's a really good conversion to to have in your head should be easy uh, to remember <laughs> yeah and, and i'll bet that if you if you tweak the universe so that's true i bet you pi is also four <laughs> <laughs> or three i, 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 made, yeah, I, made I guess three, three would be closer before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you could also make it one, two a lot of times. So, so <laughs> that was the speed, uh, in the flight path angle was, um, uh, at minus 5.85 degrees instead of the 6.5 degrees necessary. Um, but that's still within range that they were able to bring it back. Uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't bounce off the atmosphere. It didn't plunge to its fiery death. Uh, the heating rates and loads were not as high as they wanted because again, this was not at quite the velocity that they needed. But, uh, I guess in their view, it, you know, good enough they qualified it uh the parachute deployed uh successfully there was no problems with that so that was good uh and the uh, command module splashed down about 49 nautical miles north of where it was supposed to or i guess rather uprange of where it was supposed to so not necessarily north 
but it was still successfully recovered, and uh, that was the end of the mission. So um, going back to the clue, pretty much the clue is a compilation of various quotes from a few people, and that's where that comes from. The Apollo program director, Samuel Phillips, said that there's no question that it's less than a perfect mission or that it's a less than perfect mission. And on learning that the second stage could reach orbit on just three engines, he said that that was a major uh, and unplanned accomplishment, which I kind of agree that you can still get to orbit on just three engines, even if two go out and you don't even have a scenario for that necessarily programmed into the guidance. That's pretty good. Um, And then George Muller, who at the time was the head of the Office of Manned Spaceflight, said uh, that it was an excellent launch in balance, a successful mission. But then he later stated that it would have to be defined as a failure. So it's a successful mission, but then he says later it's, you know, kind of a failure. So I I guess even he can't make up his mind. Yeah, He, he would agree with your clue, I think. Yeah. That, well, yeah, I think that the mission, you know, in in terms of what was planned to, to be done, yes, it's a failure. But since they were able to use that to qualify for the next step in the Apollo program, it's a success. So it just depends on how you look at it. The correct answer, guesser the Greek, uh, he sent us an email saying that he's kind of surprised that this kind of thing would fly. And I kind of have to agree um, yeah. that you would... Uh, actually qualified as a success as far as uh, the requirements go when this much went wrong. So you have, you know, fuel lines rupturing, you have the engine shutting down, and you're not coming in at the right speeds, and you're trying to test for just such a thing, and they didn't do that, but uh, maybe they built into it enough of a margin for error, you know, or, you know, they were very conservative on paper. So they said, hey, if we can do it at, you know, this, you know, like reentry velocity, we can do it at you know, a little bit higher. I mean, they showed it was a versatile vehicle, but you'd still think, I mean, nowadays, yeah, you'd want to fly something with no problems or no Mm -hmm. significant problems before you start putting humans on board. But I guess this was the 60s and they were rushing. Yeah. I mean, you're putting humans on board to go to the moon. I mean, Mm. that's, you know, things go wrong. I mean, you do have your free return trajectory. So, you know, that was the whole point of that. So if something goes wrong, they just kind of have to wait it out. So, okay. Yeah. If something goes wrong in a very particular part of the mission. But yeah, so that is Apollo 6, the successful, but not quite successful. Call it what you want, but (laughs) it got us to Apollo 7 and Apollo 8 and so on and so forth. All right, David, thank you so much for another Apollo deep dive. (laughs) I just, I can't get enough Apollo. All right. Uh, Next week is the 5th through the 11th of April. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1984, Pinky and the Brain that he's trying to fix. Pinky and the Brain he's trying to fix. All right. Well, uh, if you have a guess for what this clue might mean, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So let's do uh, five upcoming spaceflight events. Lots of launches this week. And what's the first one, Ben? All right. We've got MS-19 coming back home to Earth. So this is going to be taking place on March 30th. That's Wednesday. Um, Coverage uh, is going to be on NASA TV. Uh, Well, I guess... Technically, it starts on Tuesday if you are in the Americas. Uh, 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time is when coverage of the farewells and hatch closure is going to be taking place on NASA TV. Um, and then 2.45 a.m. on Wednesday will be the coverage of the undocking. The deorbit burn uh, is scheduled for 6.34 a.m. Uh, Eastern time coverage will begin at 6.15 a.m. And then they're going to be doing replays. But I think, yeah, deorbit burn and landing. Let's see. I said I said deorbit burn is 6.34. Landing is at 7.28 a.m. Eastern time. So all a little early, uh, but you can definitely watch that if you are waking up early or if you're not in the Americas and waking up at a normal time. <laughs> and then on March 31st, we have potentially a really big uh, milestone, the uh, maiden flight of the Juchue 2 rocket. And so this is the private Chinese uh, launch vehicle company Landspace's original design. And this would be a medium-sized rocket with a Methalox engine mm-hmm. uh, capable of lifting 4,000 kilograms of payload into a 200-kilometer LEO or 2,000 kilograms into a 500-kilometer sun-synchronous orbit. And so while methane, Methalox engines have uh, heaved things into the air to some extent. Uh, this would be the first uh, Methalox vehicle to get on orbit. So yeah, uh, good luck if they uh, pull that off. And so the launch itself is uh, 
slated to take place at some point on March 31st. Uh, again, that's March 31st on Thursday. Uh, and it would fly out of Jiuquan, uh in China. And then after that, on April 1st, we have uh, an Electron launch. This is launching Black Sky 16 and 17. So this is another Black Sky, another set of Earth observations satellites. And uh, this mission is nicknamed Without Mission a Beat, which is a great name for their mm-hmm. mission. I love it. And it is launching at uh, 1235 UTC from Launch Complex 1A at the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand. So that would be on the East Coast about 835 in the morning. So it's not actually too late or early in the day. So you can uh, watch that and uh, check it out. It's always a beautiful launch. After that, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Transporter 4. Um, so this is one of the last uh, space flight missions, the, the transporter rideshare missions that's going to be flying on SpaceX. I believe they have uh, five and six still on the books, and then that will be it. But this is uh, a bunch of small vehicles uh flying to orbit on the same rocket. Um, I have a list of them and uh, I don't know how how to prioritize this because there's always like one or two of these guys that's like super interesting and we wish that we would have talked about it after the launch when people mm-hmm. when other people have gone done the research and and done some reporting. Okay, so this is planned to launch on Friday, April 1st at 1624 hours UTC. April Fool's joke, April Fool's joke. <laughs> okay, and finally, we have a really interesting mission coming up and one that I think everybody will be excited for. And this is uh, a no earlier than April 3rd, and it'll be a Falcon 9 taking the Axiom 1 uh, first all-private mission to the ISS. And so this is a crew headed by Shuttle Superstar and I believe has the most hours of uh, EVA for any American astronaut, uh, Michael Lopez Alegria, and uh, pilot Larry Connor and mission specialists Mark Pathy and Eitan Steva will also be uh, on board. And they're all paying customers with the commercial act astronaut being Michael Lopez Alegria. And when they get to the station, that'll put 14 people up there. So it'll get pretty crowded um, as it happens. And so uh, they are going to fly on the Endeavor uh, Dragon capsule, which had previously flown Demo 2 and, and Crew 2. And so some really cool heritage there. Uh, they had planned on actually originally flying on the Resilience capsule, but that one had the window installed for Inspiration 4. So they decided mm. to switch it over to Endeavor. And uh, furthermore, uh, since we're always talking about bathtub curves of boosters uh, and whether we would want to ride on the first or 10th launch of a booster or somewhere in between, this will be the fifth launch of Booster 1062, which had previously flown a couple of GPS satellites, had flown Inspiration4, and then a Starlink. And so being the fifth launch of a booster, I feel like it's it's proven itself quite well. It's taken humans uh, yeah. to orbit already. And so um, very exciting. Best of luck, uh, you know, uh, for them. I hope they enjoy it. I know, obviously, Michael Lopez Algri has been on orbit before, but uh, for the other uh, customers that will be flying there. And so, again, keep an eye out for that on April 3rd with a nominal launch time of 1713 UTC, flying out of the Cape at Launch Complex 39A. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Cool. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to Mike, Chubby, Colin, Alex, The Greek, VT, Chris, McMally, and Kenton for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.